You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. We are reading from John 15, and we'll be reading from verse 1 to verse 11. So that is John 15, starting at verse 1. I am the vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Tiana. If you haven't met me, my name is Luke, uh, one of the pastors here. How about we pray as we get into God's word? Father God, we thank you for your word that's living and active. We thank you that uh, it's inspired by your spirit, these words spoken by Jesus himself. And now we ask that your spirit might speak again to us through these words as we study them in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how do you define the good life, the life well lived? I think there's lots of options that people might give. We all want this good life. We want to feel like we're doing well. Uh, For some people, it's around uh, how do you assess your life morally? Do you live up to the moral code that you've set for yourselves or you, you believe in? For lots of people, it's about being respected, being popular, influential, uh, leaving a legacy, being well remembered by other people. Ultimately, it's probably a life of meaning and purpose. We want to feel fulfilled and successful. We want to feel satisfied. But how do you get that? How do you make sure that you have that? How do you uh, make sure you have a life well lived? And then how do you measure that along the way? And I actually think that that's probably a question even for Christians. We would say that we have the sense of we understand why we're here, we're being created and we we have a God that we're serving and so on. And yet we could even still struggle to know how to live this life and to assess where we're at. See, as Christians, we know our future and we know our past. We know our past, that we are sinners who've turned against God and rebelled against him and disobeyed our creator. And so we, we've come back to him seeking forgiveness, asking him to save us, and we've trusted that Jesus can do that for us. So we know our past, and then we have a sense of our future as well, that Jesus is going to uh, return and we're going to spend eternity with him, that we have a life with him in the future. So we understand both our past and our future, but we may struggle to understand what we do in our present. Or to put it another way, 
why doesn't Jesus just sort of take us? As, as soon as we become a Christian, why doesn't he just take us, zap us and, and take us into heaven? Well, what's the point of this bit here in the waiting? How do we live this life? What's our goal? What are we trying to achieve? If we're saved by grace, why, what are we doing right now and how do we measure how we're going with that? That's really what this series is about. Today we begin a new series called The Vine, The Trellis and The Crow, a very enigmatic title for a series. You won't know what it means. Hopefully you will by the end of today's sermon. But basically our goal here is to think through what are we here for and how do we make the most of this life? What are the ways in which we can kind of enhance this life and live it to its fullest? What's God's vision, what's God's vision for this life in the here and now? And really it centres around our connection to Jesus. Jesus is the true vine. That's what he says here in verse 1, I am the true vine. And this is a very significant statement for his audience who are Jews because the vine was a very uh, important symbol in Jewish life. In fact, one writer suggested it's a little bit like the stars and stripes in America. It had that kind of iconic value. It was on coins. It was even over one of the entrances to the, to the temple. They had this beautiful golden vine that had been uh, moulded out together with grape clusters from precious jewels. And they chose that because the vine was an emblem of the people of Israel, a metaphor that they drew from Scripture. See, uh, in Isaiah 5, Israel is likened to a vineyard. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And this is really symbolic of the nation's story. You might uh, know the story of God's people. They were slaves in Egypt, but God brought them up out of that and, and put them in the promised land. And, and this is likened in Scripture to kind of like a gardener preparing the, the field and then creating and planting a vineyard. So he says in Psalm 80, uh, God brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. And so the idea was that the nation would then produce fruit. That's what a vine does. You plant it, you look after it, and then it starts to produce fruit. And so God had promised to Israel that he would bless them and then they would become a blessing to others. They would produce fruit for the benefit of everyone. That was their privilege and that was their purpose, to experience God's grace and then to share it with others. And so Israel was the place of blessing. If you wanted to find blessing, you would get connected to Israel. But then as we read on in Scripture, we actually find that a lot of references to Israel as the vine are negative ones. You see, they were meant to produce good fruit, but they end up producing bad fruit. Isaiah 5, God looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Jeremiah 2, it turned degenerate and became a wild vine. You see, God's people strayed from his commands and uh, something we read about in the history books of the Old Testament. They turned to other gods when they were supposed to serve only the, the one true God. And these other gods started to deform their values and their morality. They became savage and cruel. And so God warned them that there would be consequences. You see, if your vine is not producing the fruit that you want it to produce, then you need to do something about it. You need to uh, cut it back or replant it and start again. And so God warned the Israelites that he wasn't going to protect them as the vine. Isaiah 5, now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. And so it proved. 
the land of Israel was overrun by foreign powers and many of the people were either killed or dragged off into exile. Ezekiel 19 says that the vine was plucked up in fury and cast down to the ground. Jeremiah 12, the pleasant portion became a desolate wilderness. And so Israel had supposed to be this beautiful vine. God had done all of this work with it, but it hadn't produced the fruit that he wanted it to produce. They were supposed to have life and bring life for others. And so God, the vine dresser, needs a new vine, a replacement. And here in this passage, John 15, Jesus claims to be that new vine. I am the true vine. And really what he's saying here is now he is the place of blessing and growth. If you want to be connected to God, he's saying you need to be connected to me. It's not about being part of Israel. It's about being connected to me. That's what Jesus is saying. And then he's saying if you are connected to me, then you can have fruit. You can have life. My life will spread through me into you and then you will bless others around you. Jesus is claiming to be the source of all fruit and life, the best source of life. Now, that was a radical thing for the Jews to hear, but it's a radical thing for us too. See, in our world, we all want to live this good life and there's lots of people offering us a way to do that. If you extend the analogy, there's lots of people saying that here is the vine, where there's another religion, maybe it's Islam or Buddhism, here's the vine, if you connect yourself there, then you'll find life, or perhaps it's a philosophy like atheism or humanism, or maybe it's a, a million self-help books that offer the, the key, the secret to the well-lived life. But here Jesus is saying that he is the only true vine, that he is the only place for true, real, human flourishing. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. If you're not in me, then you just won't have this. So Jesus is claiming to be the source of true life. And so if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, then the real, the first point, to pursue, if you want, the well-lived life is to come to Jesus. Now, this is something that we can't earn, we can't pay it back for him. Really, all we need to do is recognise that we need it and to ask him for it. Jesus said he is the way, the truth and the life. He is uh, the, the truth about God. He is God in the flesh and he shows us what God is like. And then he becomes the way to God. We can't get there ourselves, but Jesus can bring us. He can take our sin and then give us new life. He is the way to God. And then with him, we can have life, a full and an extraordinary life. Our joy may be full, verse 11. So Jesus is the secret to life, the way, the truth and the life. But what exactly does he mean by this fruit? What is the fruit that he's talking about here? What does it mean that Jesus can produce fruit in us and through us? Well, I think in this passage, what it means is the fruit that we're looking for is that we can become Christ-like. We can become like God himself. And this is where the vine image is so powerful. Just think about how the vine produces fruit. The, the life of the vine spreads through the branches. 
That's how it works with God as well. Kent Hughes says the fruit that Jesus speaks of here is the reproduction of the life of the vine in the branch. And, of course, the, the fruit will match the vine. It will produce something like the vine is supposed to produce. If it's a grapevine, it will produce grapes. And so if we're connected to the vine of Jesus, we will start to produce fruit like Jesus. We will start to become like God himself. Just think about what we're told about the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the characteristics of God himself. And as the Spirit lives within us, then that fruit starts to come out of us. We start to produce these things. God makes us like him. Isn't that extraordinary? See, if you come to Jesus, you don't just get life with you don't just get saved. You actually get to have a life with him. And more than that, you get to start to become like God. And that's really a reclamation of our purpose. You see, humanity was made to live with God, for God, and to be like God himself. In Genesis, we're told that we were made in his image and likeness. And we were placed, Adam and Eve were placed in the Garden of Eden to be a part of God's plans, be a part of his family, be a part of his purposes. That was the, the dignity they were given. And this was only disrupted by sin. They, they turned against God. They rebelled against him. And so they fell from that high state. But here, because of Jesus, we are restored. Jesus takes on our wrongdoing, our sin, pays for it, dies for it, and he rises again to give us new life. We are remade in his purpose, in his image. I asked at the top what, what the goal of our present is, and really here is at least part of it significant part of it. We have a glorious future, 1 John 3, beloved, we're God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. That's, that's our future. If you're in Christ, you will see him and you will be transformed completely to be like him. And that shapes our present, John says, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Because of our future, we embrace that now. We start to purify ourselves in the likeness of Christ. 2 Corinthians 3, we behold the glory of the Lord and we are transformed into that image from one degree to another. That's what we're here for, to become more like Christ, to become more like God himself. But how do you sort of measure that? How do you assess how are you going? What is the fruit? What kind of fruit can we see on a day-to-day level? Well, I see three things in this passage that are quite significant. First of all, we love like God, we pray with God, and we are pruned by God. First of all, we love like God. You see, to be like God means ultimately that we will love like he does. So the Apostle John says in 1 John 4, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. God is love, he says, so anyone who's connected to him will become loving. It just That's how it flows. 
He is the starting point of love. That's, that's who he is. That's where he's, what he's like. And so as we're connected to him, we start to love. And what does that look like? I mean, love is just kind of a, a sentimental emotion, perhaps, in our culture. Well, throughout the Bible, we see definitions of this. Take, for instance, Colossians 3, where Paul says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. This is what love looks like practically. Compassionate hearts are those hearts that are willing to feel what others feel. Kindness is caring about someone as much as you care about yourself. Humility, says one writer, is the the noble choice to forego your status and then use your resources, your influence for the good of others. Meekness is strength under control. You have the ability, but you control that strength so that you can serve others. Patience means that you're willing to bear with one another, even if they hurt you, and then you're even willing to forgive them because that's what Jesus has done for you. That's, that's a good definition of love. That's what love looks like practically. And when you think about it, it's what we see in Jesus, isn't it? He had compassion for us. He felt for us. He cared enough to come into this world. He humbled himself. He, he uh, gave up his great noble status and used his power, his resources to help us, to serve us. And in humility, he's died for us to forgive us. And so, because that's the definition of love, and we're connected to this God of love, we will start to see these characteristics in ourselves. When that happens, God is making us more like him. And ultimately, God's love is perfected in us. That's what John says, 1 John 4, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. I think what he's saying when it says it's perfected in us is God's love is made manifest in us and through us when we extend it to others. So uh, we become like God. God is a spirit, so we can't see him. But as we start to become like him, his character becomes visible through us. People can't see God walking around, but they can see us. And the more we're made like him, the more tangible God becomes to them. And his love is perfected, shown through us. What an honour. So one of the signs that God is at work in us is that we will love like him and then secondly we'll pray with God. You might have noticed verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is an incredible verse but a bit of a confusing one. See, it sounds like it's just a blanket promise. Just ask whatever you wish and it will happen for you. And yet we feel like we have to put a condition on that, don't we? Because we know that when we pray, we don't always get what we want. And we see that in the Bible even. But I think there's a condition here that God gives, and it's the if. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, then you can ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. I think what's happening here is, again, the dynamic of the vine. See, we're connected to God, we're connected to Jesus, 
The Spirit is living within us, making us more like him. And that means that the Spirit is aligning our will to his will. Now, the will is the deepest part of us, our deepest desire, our instinct, the things that we most want. And in fact, we kind of arrange our life to try and achieve our will. That's, that's our thing. And you, it's very hard for the will to change. You can try and force it, but you, you can't actually force it. It's, it's just there. And in a person who isn't yet a Christian, by nature, it's set against God. Romans 8, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Like our will is bent against God. It's, it's independent of him. But the incredible thing is that when God comes into our life, he starts to change our will. He starts to align our will to his own will. We can't change our will, but he can and he does. And then this starts to flow out into our prayer life. So when we pray, we pray for what we want. I pray for my will. I pray for whatever my desire is. That's what I'm going to pray for. As a Christian, you still pray for what you want, but what you want has changed. Your will is now the same more and more as God's will. And so it's almost like you're praying the prayers that God would pray if he was in your position. And, of course, as that happens, those prayers are answered. God prays according to his desires, so to speak, and his desires come to fruition. Gary Burge says, Disciples know God's heart, and so when they pray, their desires and God's will harmonise. Prayer that is in self inspired by the spiritual presence of Jesus, that is in harmony with his will, this prayer will succeed. And so we have this extraordinary thing that happens, that as God moves within us, our will aligns with his, we start to pray with God. So these first couple of things are great. We get to love like God. We get to pray with him. That sounds fun. But the third one is maybe not as attractive to us. We are pruned by God. Verse 2, every branch that bears fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. I don't know a whole lot about gardening. I got in trouble for how I explained this this morning, but I know that pruning is crucial to it. In the ancient world, a vine would be pruned twice a year, once in spring when the first fruits were coming through and then again in autumn after the harvest when the dead and useless branches would be removed. That's a very physical, a very exacting kind of process. You pinch the tip of the plant so it doesn't grow too fast or too early. You top off an inch of new growth, new growth to make sure that it doesn't get lost in the wind. You, you even thin the, the clusters of the grapes so that the rest make more fruit. And this looks kind of strange. It looks a bit brutal. I mean, if you've ever seen a pruned vine, it looks emaciated. It looks sort of shell-shocked and traumatised because you're cutting away the life. You're cutting away the fruit of the vine. Why would you do that? Well, actually, because the pruning leads to better growth and more growth. You prune so that you can create more fruit. 
Tom Wright explains, a rose bush left to itself will get straggly and tangled and needs help to grow in the right directions and to the right ends. You prune the rose, in other words, to help it be its true self. And the same thing happens with us spiritually. We are pruned by God, and this feels brutal, can be painful, but it's actually for our good. It's so that we can produce more fruit, so that we can be our true self. We can be what we were created to be. Sometimes this happens when we, when we sin. We, we do the wrong thing. We experience the consequences of this. I got a speeding ticket a few weeks ago, and so I'm definitely taking more care on the road to drive slower. I'm learning from my consequences. I've been pruned Perhaps we spend money foolishly and we find ourselves paying back debts. And so we've learned to be more careful with our finances in the future. You lose your temper. You say something cruel to someone else and you feel the wounds in that relationship. So that makes you more careful to, to watch your tongue. These are the kinds of consequences that we we might have, but we actually become thankful for them because it's made us more watchful. We've been pruned from our sin. Psalm 119, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It was good for me that I was afflicted, he goes on to say. So sometimes when we sin, God uh, does something through the consequences. But it's not always like that. In fact, often he prunes us, Uh, in different ways. It's not when we sin. I mean, consider someone who's experiencing persecution or opposition. They're not being judged by God, but God is working in that experience for them. He draws close to them to help them. 1 Peter 4, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So here is someone in adversity and difficulty being pruned, experiencing a brutal time, but God is drawing close to bring fruit. And often that happens in adversity. Imagine the grief that you feel over losing a loved one or your confusion as one of your plans doesn't come to fruition. You're forced to wait for something that you really want. These feel like adversities. We wonder what God is doing, but actually he can prune us and create something beautiful through it. And we can even start to be thankful for this. Romans three, uh, Romans 5, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces a whole bunch of fruit. Endurance, character, hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts in the adversity through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And so God can use the difficult moments of our life, those those moments might actually be him pruning us to produce more fruit. And yet, of course, there's a chance that we might miss this. You see, we think instinctively when things are going wrong and there is adversity that either God is cruel or that we have fallen short of him and he's punishing us. In fact, some of you will have been to churches where that was explicitly taught. If things are wrong in your life, it's because you've done something wrong and God is judging you. If you need, you need more faith and then it'll be okay. That's what you've grown up hearing. Or you struggle to trust that God is good in these situations. You wonder how he can be sovereign or kind. 
But what if these things are actually part of his blessing? So far from being a curse, what if God is actually using these things to care for you and to love you? We saw a few weeks ago how God was pruning the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians 12, he talks about a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan sent to harass him. He's grieved by this. This is a profound adversity. And he prays desperately. We saw this, didn't we? He prays desperately that God would take it away. That's his, that's Paul's will is that this be taken away, but it's not God's will. God says, I'm going to keep it this because I don't want you to become conceited. But more than that, I want you to know my strength in your weakness. That's God's will. And so Paul discovers this and his heart is aligned to God's will eventually. He starts to see that God's way is the best way. He trusts God's wisdom and his love. He realises that God is pruning him and he starts to see the fruit that comes from that. And so when we're feeling these difficult moments, try to imagine, try to understand, try to trust that actually God is drawing close. My wife was explaining to me how when you prune, you do it very carefully and very deliberately. You, you pick the exact spot because that is the bit that will produce the most fruit. It takes a lot of skill. And so it really shows that the gardener has profound knowledge and understanding about how this plant works. And so it is with God. God is showing us his knowledge of us. Tom Wright says, The vine dresses never closer to the vine, taking more thought over its health than when he has the knife in his hand. So when God is pruning us, that shows how much he understands us and how much ultimately he wants to produce fruit in us. So this week, I want to ask you to, to look at the adversity in your life and to see if you can find God in it. Maybe there's a crisis that you're in or crisis in the past, loss, disappointment, trial. I'm sure in the past you've had these dark moments, but if you look back on them with the eye of faith, I'm sure you can also see how God has shaped you through it. Perhaps the loss of someone close to you has made you more thankful for those that you still have with you. It's changed your priorities, the way you parent or the way you, you care for other people in your family. Perhaps you've had a humiliating experience that has made you more humble. So when other people stumble, you're, you're far more uh, loath to judge them. You're more careful and loving to them. Perhaps you felt cursed because this plan that you had didn't come to fruition. But now you see the wisdom of God, that actually he was leading you to something better. This is, I think, the fruit of God's pruning. He's showing us his wisdom, if we will trust that it's there, because ultimately he wants us to become more like Jesus. Uh, Ken Hughes says, when the gardener does his pruning well, he leaves little more than the vine. Similarly, the more we are pruned, the more of Christ there is in our lives. And don't you see that in people's lives? There's, 
why is it that the people who seem to have experienced the most difficult adversities, the hardest lives, why are they the ones who seem to have the deepest faith? It's because God has been pruning them and they've trusted him in that. That's what I've been grappling with over the last couple of weeks. I don't want adversity. (laughs) I want a happy, easy life. But I also want to produce fruit. And so I'm going to have to allow God to prune me and to trust him in that. As Hughes puts it, without pruning, a vineyard would never be in full bloom. We'd rather do it ourselves, but we cannot. And even if we could, we wouldn't remove what really has to go. The truth is, what is noble and attractive in us has come from the cutting that we would have avoided. See, God wants us to bear much fruit, verse 8, and so he prunes us. It's for his glory. By this my Father is glorified, and it's also for our good. We grow so that our joy may be full, verse 15. So we love like God, we pray with God, we're pruned by God. And this process will continue if we abide in him. See, this word abide comes up about 10 times in this passage. It's clearly a big concept for us here. And it comes with this promise that if we abide in him, we'll continue to produce fruit. But it also comes with a warning that we must make sure that we're abiding in the vine. Verse 4, as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 2, every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. So so there seems to be some, uh, it's necessary for us to stay connected to Jesus. Now, I don't think he's saying here that we can lose our salvation elsewhere in John. Jesus makes it very clear that all that the Father has given to him, he won't uh, let them fall away. But it is saying something here, I think, about uh, an ongoing life of fruitfulness that if we are abiding in him, then yes, we will continue to produce fruit and we will live well. But if we fail to abide with him, then we won't produce that fruit. We'll waste our life. Because there's this kind of tension, this fight to abide. This is really where the other words in our series title comes in, the vine, the trellis and the crow. Look, let's be honest, we're mixing our metaphors in this series. Jesus only talks about the vine, actually. We've added the other two, but they're there by implication. First of all, you might think about the crow as the things that would take away our fruit. So in Jesus' parable of the sower in Matthew 13, a sower throws out his seed across the ground and it goes on different types of soil. Some seeds fell along the path and the birds came and devoured them, says Jesus. And then he later explains that these birds, these crows, if you will, represent the devil. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. And so we have this outside force that is is trying to take away what would produce fruit in us. You see, Jesus wants us to produce much fruit to become more like God. Well, the devil wants us to produce no fruit or the worst fruit. He wants us to become like him. And so he will do that by seeking to distract us and to tempt us. He'll prey on our vulnerability to temptation. And so we have to fight against that. We have to hold on and to abide in the vine. 
And that's where the trellis comes in. See, to protect the vine and to make sure it grows well, you need to train it. You can just leave it to trail along the ground, but then it'll be inefficient. It doesn't look after the vine properly. So you need to raise it up. You need to stick it onto a pole or even better, stick it onto a trellis. When you do that, that gives a structure that will shape the vine. And in fact, the, the vine loves this. I was watching this video yesterday. A vine will send out what it's called uh, feelers, which twirl around in the air looking for something to grab a hold of. And once it grabs onto that, it starts to grow onto that thing. So basically, a vine works best, grows best when it has structure. It's the same for us spiritually. Really, what we're saying is to stay connected to the vine and to produce the most fruit, we need some structure. That's what we'll be talking about in this series. Really, what we're talking about is spiritual disciplines, the kinds of things that will help us to grow. It will train us, things like prayer or reading the Bible, uh, worshipping together, fasting, solitude, confession, fellowship, the sacraments. These are the kinds of things that will help us grow. Now, don't uh, get it wrong. It's not that the trellis produces the fruit. It's not that the trellis is the fruit. You know, the fruit is not just that we read the Bible three times a week or something. It's that the reading of the Bible helps the vine to grow. It gives structure that God works through. One writer, David Mathis, calls them the habits of grace. I love that term. It's, it's that when we do these things, this is the pathway where God's grace Read the Bible, you will find that God sheds out, pours out his grace upon you. That is the place that he has ordained to give us good things. This is the place where he produces fruit. So our series is really going to be about how do we do this? Next, we're going to think about the trellis. What are the kinds of spiritual disciplines that we can embrace? Why do we do them? And then over the coming weeks after that, we'll look at some of those specific things, things like examination and encouragement and engagement and withdrawal. We'll think about how we work and how we rest and how we live in the now and the not yet. These are the things that God uses to bring growth in our lives. And if you think about it, these are the kinds of things that Jesus did. He read the Scriptures. He spent time in prayer. He withdrew into solitude. He spent time with other people and celebrating God with the community of God's people. And that's really the point. See, if the fruit is ultimately to become like Christ, then it makes sense to live like Christ lived, to pursue the kinds of habits of grace that Christ pursued. And so that's what we're going to seek to do. We are connected to God through Jesus, his life is in us. We are the branches, he is the vine, and he is doing something within us for his glory and for our good. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for uh, the opportunity to think through this new uh, series. We thank you for all the profound images in Scripture that we have, this idea that you are the vine and that we are connected to you. Our Lord, we thank you that we acknowledge you as the source of life and true fruit. Lord, we ask that uh, we might truly be connected to you in faith and repentance, trusting you and, and living with you. 
And then we ask that uh, the sap that is in you would come through us, so to speak, that your spirit might live within us so that we become like you. We start to live like you in profound and beautiful ways, that we start to, to love like you. We pray with you, our, our will aligned to your will. And Lord, we even ask that you would prune us. It's hard for us to pray that because we don't want this. We don't want to be pruned, but we do want the fruit. And so we ask that we might trust you, trust you in your sovereignty, trust you in your goodness. Thank you that you are this close to us, that you want to produce something beautiful in us. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.